Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 127, as you've no doubt heard already. Um, I'm, a, I'm still a little bit under the weather, uh, so as the episode progresses, my voice might get worse. I apologize in advance. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any announcements. Uh, not really, except if you actually go over to battleshippretension.com, uh, the most recent episode as of right now features uh, me and Josh and David talking about politics. And so if you ever listened to this show and wondered, hey, what, what do Tyler and Josh believe? Uh, go over to Battleship Pretension, listen to episode, I believe, 419, and give it a listen. Uh, the episode is uh, getting high marks. Somebody uh, commented and said it is one of our 10 best episodes ever, which uh, I think is overstating, but that's a nice thing to say. So, um, okay, I think that is, a, what was that? Oh, sorry, Josh is talking to me off mic, uh, but I haven't introduced him, so I appreciate that he's not talking. Um I'm going to be at WonderCon uh, this weekend, so as of tomorrow, and uh, David and I are putting together a little uh, meetup, which we have not uh, specified. It'll probably be Saturday, I think, to give people at least a little bit of time to actually attend if they want, uh, and it'll be at the uh, in, in Anaheim at the Hilton near the convention center in the lounge. Uh, that's where everybody's going to be. So you might find it hard to, uh, to find us, but, uh, I'll try to, I might actually wear my battleship pretension shirt so that it's very clear where I am. Um, I'm very happy that I got it for Christmas now. Uh, but yeah, so I'll, I'll, uh, post something on the more than one lesson website. Once that has been uh, decided, uh, I've, de- I uh, designed a poster for it last night. Uh, the poster says to the WonderCon," and it's, uh, based on Terrence Malick's poster for to the wonder because I'm ridiculous and nothing will get people in more than evoking one of his lesser films. So, okay. Uh, I will now welcome in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hi. How you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for reminding me of WonderCon. That's all right. I said, thanks. You're supposed to say you're yeah, welcome. You're welcome. No problem. I, if I had said, I'm sorry, that I forgot about WonderCon. That's when you say, that's all right. I can say that's all right. Like, don't, you don't need to thank me. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. I see. I meant it in I that see. way. Also, I, I feel like since I didn't cover up the mic when I whispered the word WonderCon, people might hear a strange ethereal voice going WonderCon very lightly. Okay. So <laughs> on Never Not Funny, for like the last year or so, they've talked about something. I don't, I never remember the name. It's, uh, it's, there's a long name and there's an abbreviation. I don't remember any of it, but it's basically just these con- like concepts or things or like situations that like make like the back of your head tingle. Oh, okay. Uh, where it's just, and I, I think everybody has maybe something like this. Maybe, I don't know if the back of my head has ever tingled, but just certain things that if I see it in a movie or if I see it in everyday life, it just feels like something gets, seems to get released in the brain where it's like, it just feels right. It feels mm-hmm. good to see that. Um, and so, you know, like for Jimmy Pardo, it's uh, somebody like uh, either trying on a suit or like selling a suit or something like that. And so there's a YouTube channel where this woman whose name, once again, I've forgotten, um, makes little videos about the various things it could be. Hmm. And a lot of it involves her like whispering. Oh, yeah. I've heard whispering has okay. a weird effect on a lot of people. And, and so they played some of it 
uh, on Never Not Funny, and it just sounded maybe because I just finished watching Twin Peaks uh, for the third time. Uh, it just seemed very David Lynchian. The whole thing seemed very Lynchian. And uh, so you saying WonderCon? It, it sounds like something that would happen at the Black Lodge. So, um, <clears throat> except could you say it backwards? <laughs> Probably. Uh, we're not going to figure it out, on, Mike. Um, all right, so everybody, we're gonna we're gonna jump into the topic here because it's very dicey, I think. Um, we're going to be talking about Going Clear, the HBO documentary written and directed by Alex Gibney, based on the book by Lawrence Wright, and it is a, a documentary about Scientology, and. It's uh, it's tearing up the charts. Everybody was talking about it for. I mean, it, it only aired a few, a few days ago, right? Yeah, I think it was. It might have been this Tuesday. No, it couldn't have been two days. I ago. I think Sunday. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. So it's only a few days old. A lot of people have talked about it. Uh, and what's interesting to me is, and the film actually confirms this. I thought Scientology was sort of in decline. As far as membership, like, don't get me wrong, I I don't think it's going to die or go away or anything like that, but I was just under the impression that the days of people being fascinated by it Mm -hmm. uh, were over, like, as of a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And sure enough, it sounds like their membership is is down, down Mm -hmm. to only, like, 50,000 members worldwide, which is, when you think about it, it's like 50,000 is a lot. That's a stadium. Yeah, it's still a lot of people. It's a lot of people. But it's but for some one place. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and when you think of, you know, when you think of like major religions, it gets into the millions or billions. And so mm. 50,000 people is not very many, not very many at all. And so, it, so I, I was surprised that the film was getting so much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I realized that, oh, well, a few years ago, back when it was getting a lot more attention, I had read a bunch of articles about it and stuff like that. And it was something that, that fascinated me for a long time. And so when I saw the film, I mean, I don't want to say like, like, Oh, I knew about Scientology before it was cool. Like, but it was just, it didn't necessarily tell me anything I hadn't read already. Yeah. I Um, think I felt the same way. There was a lot of information. I, (coughs) I kind of knew, although I, I, one of the things I liked about it is it, it clarified a lot of the things that I'd kind of heard. Yeah. Or, uh, you know how you clarify something you go clear. <laughs> um, there are a lot of like, cause you, with things like this, you always hear like little stories. Yeah. And, um, I, I never like to believe those things unless I have, they have some kind of a little bit more of a basis. Yeah. And that's what I felt like this, this film did for a lot of those stories or ideas that I had heard. Yeah. It's, uh, and we'll actually get into uh, my view of the way the documentary was made in a moment. But uh, but yeah, um, and so so many people were talking about the film with such outrage uh, as far as like what it contained mm-hmm. um, that I just thought like, oh, I didn't didn't we all see that South Park episode uh, years <laughs> ago? And then didn't we all read Paul Haggis's article when it came out five or six years ago? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, and apparently no. And there is something about, you know all this information being crammed into one two hour space uh, with people just, just it's, it's a, it's a film that um, I actually watched once and then listened to twice while I was working just cause I wanted to digest it. And I found it very easily digestible because not unlike a, a film like JFK, which I've said on the show, I, I love, mm-hmm. I like movies that just give you a ton of information. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
So this is a film that gives you a ton of information. And Alex Gibney at this point, he knows how to put a documentary together so that it is easily digestible. That sounds somehow insulting, but uh, we'll get again to the way he makes films in a minute. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I think it's just, it's, it's compressed in a very specific way mm-hmm. for maximum impact, I yeah. think, uh, on, on the viewer. Mm-hmm. And so, um, to get into the film itself, I thought it was good, not great. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen Alex, I've seen Enron, the smartest guys in the room, and I've seen We Steal Secrets. I did not see Taxi, the Dark Side, for which I think he won an Oscar. I think um, so. But, uh, and he's done other things as well. He's, he's a, a, a director that I would venture to say is incendiary. He makes movies that are incendiary and he knows it and he, mm-hmm. he directs them in such a way so that we get what he is trying to say. I don't think anybody would ever accuse him of trying to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a point of view and he makes a film that, Maybe a, a film that supports that point of view, but a film that is that is that just stems from it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in this case, it is based on a book, and so I think he probably used that as as how he navigates. But the thing that gets me about the movie, and I don't necessarily think that a documentary should always be like a fair and balanced kind of thing. But when you are making claims like this, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's almost all based on people that were former members of Scientology. And in a way, that's that's what it should be. It should be people that were a part of this. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they're no longer a part of it, an argument could be made, and it is certainly the, the argument that the Church of Scientology is making, is that all of these people, for one reason or another, have an axe to grind, mm-hmm. and they're yeah. all and they're all lying. Now, right. I don't think they're lying, and I, it could be argued that they do have a little bit of an axe to grind. Maybe one that is completely reasonable. Mm-hmm. If they feel that they are mistreated by the church, then they're just simply speaking about how they were mistreated. That doesn't necessarily mean they're lying. Yeah. But realizing that, you know, when you think about it, it's like, you know, if somebody was making a documentary about how terrible Josh Long is, mm-hmm. and there are and several, that's I've I'm bankrolling a few uh, <laughs> listeners. When you buy that premium episode, that's where the money is going towards. <laughs> Uh, slow going by the way. Um, but, uh, but if I were to make, if someone were to make a movie about how terrible you are and only talk to Mm ex-girlfriends or me, you know, (laughs) people that just don't like you, um, then even if those people have a significant beef with you, it's hardly, it's hardly objective and you're not getting a full you're not getting the full scope of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking with, uh, with our friend Jason Eakin last night about the film. And he said that for him, the most refreshing parts were when they interviewed the writer of the book. Yeah. Because obviously he's been thinking about this from an objective standpoint for a very long time. And right. they talked to a couple of journalists as well. And they even make the, they even make the point that he, uh, he, he makes the point that he wasn't, meaning to write a tell-all or an expose of yeah. Scientology. He just was interested, and the more that he wrote and the more he found a lot of these things that he found upsetting or disturbing yeah. and had to dig deeper. And, and yeah. uh, So he didn't go into it with an axe to grind. Right. And so um, so I think anytime it talks to like a journalist or him, I think we're on the right track. I frankly also would have liked to hear from maybe 
members of the FBI that were, or the IRS that worked on like the cases against yeah. Scientology. I frankly would have liked to hear one or two Scientologists that are still a part of the church and defend it. Yeah. I want to hear what they get out of it. The, and the thing that I, it's hard to, to know because I feel like the case that the film presents at least is that people who spoke to them would not be right. The, the church would not be happy with people speaking to them. And I think I, I'm really not expecting that someone like David Miscavige or, uh, or, uh, Tom Cruise is going to, what did I say? Miscavige, right? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, or Tom Cruise. I'm not expecting that somebody like that is going to talk to the, right. The, and that, that's fine. Um, the one that surprises me a little bit more is the guy who is the official spokesperson. Sure. Cause it seems like he's the guy, if you're going to have someone who's going to go out there and talk to people about it, they have a former smoke spokesman, but they don't have the current spokesman. And it, right. it does make the point to say at the end of the film, he was asked to, to yeah. interview and, and, and declined. Like I said, I'm not surprised in, in the list of people that declined Tom Cruise, John Travolta, David Miscavige, they're all on there. Yeah. Like you don't expect them to well, be and, in a film like this. And to me, that's, that's part of who Alex Gibney is as a filmmaker. He'll be like, we talk, it's like, we ask for these big people. Yeah. The biggest people aren't going to talk to you. Yeah. And that, that's one of those things I always like, uh, th there's somewhere between a jab and due diligence, uh, when they do something like that, because yeah. that happens a lot of the time uh, with documentaries that have a specific, that, that seem to be critical of some idea or some faction or some corporation or government or whatever. Um, you see that a lot, like the following people were asked comment and did not on the one hand, you want to know that the film at least tried to get some of those people, especially when they talk so much about them. Sure, and all of those people are people they talk about often. At the same time, I think to the filmmakers, I think it's more important. I think what they want to do with that postscript is to say, these people have something to hide. Right. Well, and the other thing is like, when I look at that and I see a list of five names, there's a membership of 50,000. When I see a list of five names and they're the five highest profile names, obviously, again, the people that, that the film talks about. But when I see that that list of five names, like we asked for an interview, what I read is these are the only people we were interested in hearing from. And they said no. Yeah. The end. Yeah. In doing a little bit of research, I saw. And of course, it's always hard to because so much of the film is about publicity. The Church of Scientology is about putting a, pu a good public face on things. So, frankly, I don't even know who to believe anymore. But um, uh, apparently the church provided him with a list of people that they said, oh, you should talk to these people. Hmm. And and Gibney said these are people who are known and have basically made it their business to – just to publicly smear the – you know, these ex members and stuff like that. And we'll do so quite maliciously. And he said, I don't, I'm not interested in that. Hmm. And so it's, it's one of those things like, well, I guess you don't want somebody who has made it clear that no matter what they're just going, they're just out for blood. Mm -hmm. You don't want that. But at the same time, if that's all you're presented with, I don't know. It's, it's tough to know with something like this, when yeah. you have an organization that is so secretive and, and, exerts so much control over mm -hmm. how it is perceived. Yeah. It's hard to know how much Alex Gibney, how much effort he should have put into it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's tough. I, it makes me wonder if this film was ever, could ever have been as effective as I want it to be. Yeah. Um, cause it, it'd be one thing if David Miscavige said, let's do it. 
Yeah. I will be, I'll be right there in front of you or Tom Cruise or any of these people. Um, and then Alex Gibney said, no, uh, I'm interested only in what I have to say. Then, you know, then I'd, then you're, it's like, okay, well he's clearly to blame. I don't know. It's, it's a tough thing, but, uh, but I'll say that, you know, I think a lot of people expected and, and a lot of people went into the film looking to be outraged and, um, and this film certainly provides that. Yeah. Um, but when it comes right down to it as a documentary, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's effective. Uh, he makes a couple of choices that I would venture to say are glib. Hmm. Um, as far as like the type of music that he uses sometimes, mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's a sequence that actually is very effective where he uses Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, mm. uh, because it's, it's a story that uh, several guys tell about how they're playing, how David Miscavige, the, the current like head of Scientology, he, uh, he was going to play musical chairs with his executives where, uh, and he was going to play it to Bohemian Rhapsody and, uh, the last person in the game gets to stay in the church. Everybody else is excommunicated. And mm-hmm. so you have people just physically beating each other up to try to get to that last chair. And so all of this, while a well-known song is playing. And so he plays that song and it's a very, it's a very effective little sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but then elsewhere he plays, was it Kenny Rogers in the first edition? Um, uh, just oh my gosh i can't believe i'm forgetting it's from the big lebowski i yeah. just dropped in to see what see condition what my, yeah what condition my condition was it yeah a, a film a, a song that at this point i think is very much associated with big lebowski yeah which is a comedy and it's in a dream sequence that is silly yeah that, one of those busby berkeley dream sequences and i think i mean if alex gibney does not know that at this point that song is associated with a goofy comedy and he like if he doesn't know that then I feel like he needs to engage with film culture a little bit more, (laughs) but I think he does know that. And I think he plays it over like, Hey, here's the Scientology boom in the 1970s. Let's play this over it. And we'll all, and we'll all think about the dude and we'll think about the silliness of the big Lebowski Mm -hmm. and just the, the absurdity of it all. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that will contextualize what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he, uh, there's a, there's a, a bit of music. I don't know if it's original or not, but it has a very specific sound. It almost feels like, um, it almost feels like sci-fi music from the 1950s, but almost with a weird, almost, almost a polka quality to it. Like it just, it oh, sounds yeah. goofy. Yeah. And that is the music that the film ends on. Yeah, Cause there's a theremin in there. Th- yeah. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, so he, you know, he makes choices like that. Mm hmm that that i think make it clear that like oh he wants these people to look silly mm-hmm. he wants them he wants us to view them as negative and just not take them seriously and i feel like it runs counter to what a lot of the what a lot of the subjects are talking about like paul haggis speaks very eloquently about his own relationship to the church. And at the end he says, you know, he's like, I can't judge the people that stay in the church Mm -hmm. and I can't judge the people that have left the church and aren't speaking out because they're ashamed. He's like, because you know, I'm a little bit of a, I'm a little bit ashamed. Like he understands as all these other people do the, the need for belief. Yeah. And I think Alex Gibney only 
condemns that. Certainly he condemns the leadership, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I think he condemns the instinct uh, that causes this church to operate the way it does. Mm-hmm. Do do you, Josh, have any uh, issues with the with the tone of the film or the way he made the film? Like, I guess just have you seen anything by him before? I don't think so. No. Okay. And what's interesting is you are by your own admission though I don't think you've ever said it on the show, you're not a big documentary guy. No, I'm not. I generally find it difficult to get excited about a documentary or interested in it. There are, because I haven't seen that many, most of the ones that I've seen, I've come away saying, oh, that was really good. Because usually if I'm going to see one, I'm going to see one that I know is supposed to be good. Right. Um, so I, I almost always come away thinking, that was really interesting. Um but I, I, given the choice, I rarely choose to watch a documentary. <laughs> if, if, uh, I'm trying to think like ratio wise, <laughs> like the number of regular movie, uh, narrative movies I watch no. versus documentary, it might be like 50 to one or more, maybe a hundred to one. Um, I mean, it's not my first instinct either, but like, I don't know. It's, I find them refreshing. Really? Um, I'll say this these days, obviously a film is never easy to make, but with Mm -hmm. digital photography and with so many people out there willing to have their stories told and with Netflix and basically a service that's just always looking for new content, there's a lot of documentaries out there that are not good. Yeah. Um, or that are solid, like two and a half star films or something. Yeah. And there are some that I can, I feel like I can even see from that, like, if it has a subject matter that's marginally interesting to me, I don't, I don't know if I want to watch it. Like, if it's just going to be information, like I want to see something that's something I didn't know, or, or, uh, I don't know, like a different take on something, or just I kind of, I think I might gravitate towards ones that are sort of oddities. Like, mm-hmm. uh, there's a movie called, I think it's called The Imposter. Oh yeah, um, yeah. About this, uh, I think he was like in his thirties. Guy in France who who uh, posed as a 16 year old kid um, who had run away from his family in the U.S. He comes back to the U.S. and <coughs> even though he is a totally different person, the family through some kind of cognitive dissonance is able to believe that yes, this is their son, and they, he lives yeah. with them for years. So something like that, you wonder like, how did this even happen? And and I think so. You some, look for like a sensationalistic hook. That's what you want. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you don't like reality. <laughs> You want to check out of reality. That's true. Um, so, uh, so yeah. And then I, I generally stay away from political documentaries because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I was having a long discussion with my wife about this recently because I, I was saying that I think political documentaries might be the lowest form of cinema. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. That's, a, that's a, a whole other big thing. Uh, yeah. We can, we can talk about that another time. I'm not a fan of them in general. Um, I guess it I'll depends on what you define as a political documentary. Cause like citizen four could be viewed as a political documentary, but it's mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I haven't seen that. One. It's, and I think you would like it quite a bit. Um, but it's, uh, sorry, my awesome wife is, uh, helping me out with something, um, to help with my voice. Um, <clears throat> so, that oh boy, that's a this is a topic I really want to unpack, but I don't think we have time. <laughs> um, the lowest form of cinema. Why, why do you think so? Because I think I think 
for the most part, um, and maybe even more so than, I, I don't know, I'd say at least for the most part, they are made as propaganda films, but made to look like they are not. Okay. I'd say almost all of them and mo- many of the ones that I've seen anyway, which again is, is a very small piece of the pie. Um, they go into it meaning to, to convince you of a particular point and will only show you the things that will make you believe that point. It's, the, it's kind of the opposite of discourse. Mm-hmm. And they're not all like that. I'm sure there's some that go back and forth. But even then, like if the filmmaker has – a filmmaker rarely makes a documentary about a political subject because they want to explore both sides of it. Yeah, It's most of the time because they want people to understand the truth of their side of it. And I feel like uh, that's kind of like just yelling at someone. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the artistic equivalent of yelling at someone on a street corner. And I think because I think, I think it's the, the framing of it as the lowest form of cinema <laughs> in that, like there are great ones and there are a lot of bad ones. There are more bad ones than good than good ones, which could be said of all movies. Mm. There are more bad ones than good ones. Mm-hmm. And then within, and certainly like with horror movies, there are way like yeah, the cheapo horror movie. I feel like, one could argue is the lowest form of cinema, except they have to make do with a limited budget. And they often do. They, they make some interesting practical effects or some makeup effects that, that make it very tangible. And so like, um, so I think, and for me, uh, the documentaries I just described, which on battleship pretension, we've described as human interest documentaries. Those to me are, I'm not sure if I, I don't like, I don't know if I'd say anything is low. What I'd say is easy. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. are easy films to make. Political films are f- political documentaries are easy to make because mm-hmm. you know that. All right. Well, I know some people will be on board with me mm-hmm. um, because, you know, if you have a film that's telling you that you are right, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be hard. And because of the nature and how powerful film can be, you put you, you know, like what I was talking about earlier, like you pick the right music or the right general tone and it's going to be very hard for somebody who agrees with the political point. It's going to be hard for them to say this is a bad movie yeah. or this is pure propaganda. Like mm-hmm. they will go into it the way the filmmaker has and say, well, this is, these are just the facts, yeah. you know? Um, and yeah, any, any, any topic, political, spiritual, whatever, um, any, any matter of opinion or philosophy where it's like, Oh, I feel so passionately about this that, uh, I need to devote months of my life to it. Right. And yeah, you're not, you're probably not going to be, you're not going to be looking for nuance. Yeah. And I think like, because of the, I, I think that's kind of inherent in it. And because that's all presented as fact and not as uh this is what I think about this issue. It's, it's presenting opinion as fact. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think you have to do that. Yeah. But I think, that is mostly what happens. And I think that the form lends itself to that, which, you know, to get it, to bring it back to going clear, maybe that's, you know, maybe that, maybe that's to Alex Gibney's credit is he makes it clear. Like this is these, I'm going to let, I'm going to let these people talk, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and show that it's, this is completely from their point of view. But I guess, I guess by making some of the musical choices that he did and and some of the editorial choices that he did, he makes it clear, like I believe them Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to bring up anybody that refutes them. Um, anyway, this, sorry, we got uh, off, off track. Uh, were there any choices that he made, uh, positive or negative uh, or, uh, 
choices that you view positively or negatively? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think it is clear that he has an, an agenda mm-hmm. and that he has a, a point to make. Um, and I feel like that's one of the things that I try to put out of my mind a little bit. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't think, I don't know. I, I feel like what, what interests me is the, the choice of, of, uh, what to include and how to include it. Yeah. And, um, like you were talking about the structure earlier. I think I kind of like the way that's laid out. Yes. Um, the way it kind of moves from point to point, the different, because it is something that is still so mysterious to so many people. Um, I say still as if we've all known it for a long time. There's most of the stuff in this documentary. I didn't know, Mm -hmm. but, uh, because like you said, this, the church of Scientology, Scientology does really like to control their image and control what people hear and know about them. Um, there is this sense of it being shrouded in mystery kind of. So I think there are a lot of things to talk about from what do they actually believe? What does it entail to be a part of the church? Uh, what are the, what are the things that they've been accused of? Um, what are the things that people, uh, what are sort of their defenses for it? And I think we, we hear a little bit of their defenses for it, but then uh, I think it's interesting to hear from people who are inside it, who can say, this is how I felt, or this is, this is the rationale that I had for, for this or that, because, uh, while it may be, uh, feeding or driving forward his agenda, I think it also is an interesting exploration of people recognizing something that they are surprised with themselves that they did or that they thought. Yeah, and I'll say that uh, the the various testimonials, the ones that were the most effective for me were the ones of just members. Mm -hmm. You know, when it talks to, like... Mike Rinder or Marty Rathbun or, or, you know, people that were high up, Mm -hmm. there's a real anger there. And the anger seems to come from how they were treated. Mm -hmm. But then there's this woman who is a little bit older, Mm -hmm. uh, named Hannah. She's British. And to me, her, uh, her story is so effective. Yeah. Because, well, yes, she did, you know, she got involved in, in the sea organization and that sort of thing. So, you know, she was, she had responsibilities. She was very much just kind of a rank and file member. Yeah. And she just tells her story about how she got to the point where she was clear. Mm-hmm. But when she found out about, you know, the core beliefs and the idea that you've got these, you know, these thetans, these ghosts basically attaching themselves to your body, almost like parasites and this feeling of like, oh my gosh, what have I you know, what have I done to cause these things to attach themselves to me? How do I get them off? I thought I was clear what's going on. And just, just the depression. And then I, I wrote down her quote though. I can't immediately find it, but it's something like she talks about having dealt with a lot of depression. And that was something that, uh, because of the structure of the church and their belief systems, you're not meant to deal with it through psychology at least. Yeah. And here's the quote. She says, those years of introspection had me believing that I was so bad that I couldn't confront how bad I was, you know, and it's this idea because she could not, she couldn't gel like, well, I was told I was clear, 
So how can I have all these Thetans attached to me? Well, maybe I'm so far off the mark I, that I can't conceive of how. Yeah. Like that. It's like, I'm like double blind at this point. Mm-hmm. And just, and that's what causes the depression for her. And just the, the, the sadness that, that comes with that. And that story and, and some of the, oddly enough, it's strange. And I, maybe there's a coincidence. Maybe it has to do with like how women are treated in the church. I don't know, but the stories of all the women were more impactful Hmm. for me. Um, because you know, you had one who is telling the story about how her, her daughter was basically taken away from her and not taken care of. And that Mm -hmm. women are encouraged to get abortions. Um, or at least when they're kind of higher up in the leadership, um, you know, a, a woman tells a story about her, her family having to disconnect from her because she refused to disconnect from her, uh, her son and all that. Mm-hmm. Like those stories about just people who came into this in good faith, they weren't looking for power. They weren't looking to, to be high up in the organization. They were just looking for answers. And then this thing that provided answers and provided comfort th- for them for a long time turned on them. And just this feeling of betrayal and sadness um, really permeates the film anytime these women are on screen. Mm-hmm. And there's some of that with Paul Haggis as well. Like there's a yeah. real a real frustration there, but also a real mournful quality when mm-hmm. he's when he's on screen. So that's the thing is, you know, well, I definitely think the film could be better made and could certainly be more objective. It is powerful. And when you hear these stories. I can definitely understand how someone would be like, I need to make a movie so that people, uh, so that other people hear these stories. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe for me, the, the best thing that he does is incorporates footage from speeches and interviews with David Miscavige mm-hmm. and Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise and L Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Man. Oh man. Okay. So here's the deal. Um, it's okay. So we're two Christians who are going to very shortly be sitting in judgment of Scientology. <laughs> um, I recognize some people might view that as somehow silly or hypocritical or, um, oblivious mm-hmm. to the, to the, the, the strange things in our own, in our own belief system. So, and we will address those later on. What I will say though, is that, uh, man, you watch footage of L Ron Hubbard and the movie The Master mm-hmm. makes so much more sense. Just he's very charismatic. Oh yeah, he's very. I mean, this is a guy who seems like he's got answers. Yeah. If this guy walks into a room, he takes it over. Yeah. And people are only too willing to to listen to that. I would be. Yeah. He's entertaining. He's fun. Yeah. He's a big presence, and he's a very creative person. And yeah. So, like they talk about. How he has, I think, some kind of... He holds the, the record for the most number of novel, novels published. Yeah, which is insane. Yeah. Um, and part of me is like, well, he's a hard worker. Yeah, definitely. And and he, he was that. And uh, I think that's one of the things that you definitely have to credit with the growth of the religion is, yeah. is uh, uh, his his drive and his, uh, how, how hard he worked. Yeah. So he's definitely a man of will. Right. I'll say that. So there are so many things to admire in him and you can see why people would admire them. Um, at the same time, 
when you're hearing things from his his wife and some of the other people that were around him, and even in some of the footage that you see, uh, you, you start to question some things about him. Yeah, and it's just, you know, I mean, you don't, in, in everyday life, you don't get the opportunity to use the term megalomaniac mm-hmm. very often, but yeah. I think that I think it applies. Yeah. Um, just a guy who certainly, and that's the other thing is, uh, people talk about how maybe he started this with cynical, uh, goals, um, to make a, a bunch of money and not have it be taxed. Mm-hmm. Um, but as time goes on and people are saying, Hey, this actually means something to me. Then you start to buy into it yourself. Yeah. And he starts to think of himself as the savior of people. And thus he can do whatever he wants because he's, he's going for a larger good. Right. He can justify a lot of the things because it's for the greater good. And, uh, I think there's definitely that sense that he didn't really believe it that much at first, but came to believe it over time. Yeah. And you see how it evolves sort of how, uh, <coughs> I don't know. They, they talk about how over time there are different factions of it that grow or not, not factions, I guess different facets of it yeah. uh, that become part of the whole experience. Um, uh, part of the, they talk a lot about it, the kind of the growth thing getting yeah. to the point where you're clear yeah. and then the OT levels, the operating Thetan, Thetan levels yeah. um, and how those, that's just kind of grown over the years. It's gotten bigger and bigger. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, as it grew it seems like he grew and he changed um and one of the people in the film is saying that uh, getting deeper into the mind of scientology is kind of getting into the mind of l ron hubbard yeah and uh you can see if that's true which it seems to be at least from the documentary that you can see why it would grow and change as he's around because he is growing and changing uh, his views on himself and Scientology and everything. And as monstrous as he seems to have been to his wife and that sort of thing, there is a certain tragic quality to him as well, because he also seems to be a victim of the things that he's putting out there. Yeah. Like he seems to deal with depression and self doubt and paranoia as well. Mm -hmm. And he probably could, do well with some therapy. Apparently he actually applied, uh, to, he, he spoke to veterans oh, yeah. affairs yeah. asking for therapy. And so it seems to be a thing that he wants, but the more he starts to believe it, the more it's like, okay, well I gotta, I gotta stay within this. Cause if I go outside of it, certainly it won't look good to anybody else. Right. Um, and, and he's convinced himself that this is how he can get out of his depression and all that. And I mean, there's a, there's a sequence where he talks about how he essentially wants to kill himself, uh, but kind of in the co- couched in a certain type of co- uh, Scientology context. Mm-hmm. And so like, he, I, I think by the end he was a deeply miserable person and yeah. one who probably felt pretty isolated and purely objectively, it's a very sad position that he worked himself into because yeah. it's, it was kind of unavoidable after a time. Yeah. If, uh, you know, we as Christians believe that there are only certain answers to, uh, the way to live and, and the, you know, the truth of reality and life and all those things. Yeah. And, you know, obviously he didn't believe in those things. So from our perspective, uh, he was never going to find those answers, but he was engaged in, 
teaching other people how to find those answers. Yeah. So that, uh, that difficulty of trying to teach other people, but not feeling yourself like you, you've actually, uh, yeah. achieved it is the sort of thing that would wreak havoc on your mind. At the same time, he, he was paranoid, but there also were people out trying to stop him and people who were against him and people didn't believe him. So, uh, first you have this tension inside him of, of probably to a degree, not believing what he's teaching other people, um, feeling like he should have all the answers and feeling like he doesn't have all the answers. And then seeing external forces conspiring against him and then in a way creating other uh, forces against him that may or may not have been there. No. Uh, it, it's just this cocktail of uh, neuroses and paranoia that would only have to get bigger and bigger and must have been uh, overwhelming to deal with. And I think what's interesting is that I do think in the same way that, yeah, it's uh, – they say uh, – I can't – yeah, Okay. Scientology really is a journey in the mind into the mind of L. Ron Hubbard, and the further you get into it, the more like L. Ron Hubbard you become. And what's interesting is that there is that, but I feel like, you know, almost like uh, almost like Soviet Russia, <laughs> you've got your Lenin, mm-hmm. and you've got Stalin. Mm-hmm. Now Lenin was not great. Mm-hmm. Then you get Stalin. And then you get David Miscavige. And I feel like both of like, while certainly it sounds like David Miscavige is, 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 uh, carrying out a lot of the things that, that L Ron Hubbard set up. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, I mean, he, it sounds like he rules with an iron fist and that Scientology at this point is just as much him as it is L Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and actually the more I think about it, the more, cause like Stalin often would, um, invoke the, the spirit and ideas of Lenin mm-hmm. who had a lot more credibility with the, with, you know, uh, communists, Soviet communists and stuff like that. And he would do that as a way of like shoring up his own power and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And so, and David Miscavige certainly seems to be doing that. Um, but again, he is also carrying out, uh, the ideals that, that L. Ron Hubbard put out there. Uh, LRH is a thing mm-hmm. that, uh, people refer to him as, uh, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know why, like, let me ask you this. Uh, and now we're, now we're completely, uh, theorizing and maybe that's not a good thing to do, but like, you know, when you and I talk about Jesus, JC, that, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. We don't say JC. There's some people who do though. I, I don't know of any, do you? I mean, I guess you do. I don't know. Not in regular conversation, I guess. Right. It's, it certainly is not the, the, uh, assumed. The preferred nomenclature. There you go. <laughs> to go back to, uh, Big Lebowski. Um, whereas everybody will reference LRH. Like that yeah. is, uh, that is, that seems to be the, the shorthand. And I find myself wondering, like, do they say LRH because, if they say his full name, they have to acknowledge, okay, it sounds, I, I, this sounds like I'm making a joke. I'm not trying to make a joke that when it comes right down to it, they're following a guy named Ron. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you say L Ron Hubbard now, it does, you know, the name has a, a, a nice quality to it. It rolls mm-hmm. off the rolls off the tongue. But when you say like L Ron Hubbard, 
you're still you're still making him a person by saying a rather standard name, Ron, Ron Hubbard, you um, know, but if you say LRH, you don't have to confront that anytime you reference him. I might, that's me just theorizing. I don't know. That's, that's a possibility. It also could be just, um, a, a shorthand that feels like it includes, includes the insiders. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The more you go through the film, there are all these terminologies that come up, and a lot of those also are uh, are acronyms. Yes, like a SP SP suppressive yeah. person. Yeah, there's a lot of things BT, like that. Body thetan. Yeah, yeah. Um, OT operating thetan. There's a lot of that stuff. So I wonder if somehow um, turning a lot of those things into acronym makes it feel like uh, a technical term somehow, and and makes Maybe. it feel like the people who are in the in, on the inside use those because they are used so often that they have to become a shorthand. It could, I could see it going either way. Certainly yeah. it does make you feel like you're on the inside of something. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're going around labeling people as a suppressive person, mm-hmm. people might not be so thrilled to be a part of uh, your thing. But if you just True. say SP and then you describe what that is without actually maybe saying the term, mm-hmm. uh, people will be like, Oh no, I understand. It like might people seem... that are toxic in your life. I got right. that. Yeah. It might seem friendlier. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so one of the things that I want to talk about, and I mentioned it earlier, is that, you know, this film kind of did a number on me because, you know, it, it, listeners of uh, episode three of More Than One Lesson, which we talk about religious, will know that uh, amongst some people, you know, you and I might make fun of the idea of Lord Zenu and all these kinds of things uh, in Scientology, but then... Bill Maher makes a big point about like, is it any more ridiculous to say that there's an invisible man in the sky who loves you and all these kinds of things. Um, and in watching this film and trying to be objective about it and trying to think, okay, well, how do we come across? How do Mm -hmm. I come across when I talk about Jesus on this podcast, when I talk about miracles and love and forgiveness and I say, you're loved, you're so loved, you know, do I sound like a cult member? Do I sound like somebody mm-hmm. within the church of Scientology? And so <clears throat> I have, this is one of the early speeches that we hear This is by David Miscavige. Okay. And I apologize. It's going to be hard for me to read this without a, a bit of snark to it. This is a speech that he gives to uh, a, a room full of Scientologists talking about the world uh, that they're trying to create. It's a world where the operative phrase reads, extending all expectations, transcending all parameters, extending the boundaries beyond any boundary, not to mention God speed, lightning speed, and a quantum leap in sheer rapidity of progress up the bridge. We're out to make every life extraordinary, and if by chance it ever seems laborious or a sacrifice, then you are looking at the off-ramps instead of the highway. You are missing the signpost up ahead, the one that reads, next stop, infinity. When he read, like, when he said that, and everybody in the audience knew what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Godspeed, lightning speed, and a quantum leap of sh- in sheer rapidity of progress up the bridge. Every people cheered at that. Yeah. I felt like I was watching the end of Matrix Reloaded. Yeah. Where they're talking to the architect architect, and I remember at the time when I watched that movie, thinking like, I know all the words he's saying. And yet somehow 
I'm clueless. I have no mm-hmm. idea what this means. Yeah. And the fact that everybody in that, like, you know, there's probably 2,000 people in that audience, and they're cheering. It's not merely that they know what he means. They are cheering. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I think the the they show a clip from... <coughs> Some kind of conference where it sounds like he's announcing the death of L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. And the way he speaks of it is, seems to us so much like it's running around, running circles around the fact of yeah. just his death, um, yeah. trying to define it in this other Prefacing, way. Prefacing, contextualizing. Right. That, and that feels like a similar moment. It, it seems like he's talking about death, not in terms of the reality of death that we all believe in. Um, yeah. Sorry, I took a drink of this hot <laughs> beverage that's meant to make my voice better, and uh, no thank you. I'm going to have to keep drinking it, because I want my voice to be good, mm. but uh, ugh, I should have done that off mic. <laughs> um, so, so we look at that, and we look at the contextualizing, and we look at the, the, the words and the terms that, that people on the inside use, and if I'm being honest with myself, I mean, there's a term that we've used, which is Christianese. There are terms that Christians use and that we understand and, and other Christians don't, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, and, and non-Christians don't. Um, and I think to myself, is this, when, when, when you and I speak, and, I, and that's the thing, I'm so deep into Christianity, I don't even know what is and isn't like even a topic of conversation that people that, that non-Christians wouldn't know about. Mm -hmm. So I'll just speak in like the broadest possible terms. Like if you and I are talking about like Jesus and the resurrection and all these kinds of things, and we talk about with such confidence, do we sound to non-Christians how David Miscavige sounds to me? Mm -hmm. And that idea was very frightening to me. Mm -hmm. Not merely because like, okay, well that's, at first it started as like, oh, well, this is concerning to me because of how I might be coming across. But then it got deeper and I thought, okay, why do I believe the things I believe? They are outlandish if you look at them a certain way. Based yeah. on like looking at your everyday life and what that looks like, working, you know, uh, hanging out with your wife or, or whatever it is, based on the experiences that you have in everyday life, the ideas of Christianity are outlandish and mm-hmm. and silly. And it makes you wonder, it makes you wonder like how did people arrive at the idea of a being that you can't see conveniently mm-hmm. enough? Like, I mean, like if you, even me saying stuff like conveniently enough, like that's a, that's a note of cynicism there. Yeah. Um, and so I really, as I, as I thought about this film and thought about my own faith, like I really wanted to be, kind of self-critical um that's a thing that that paul haggis says and and a few other people talk about because and it's actually something that i think the film does not do well is in the last like 10 minutes it actually talks about how the the reason that these that people in scientology are able to stay in there despite any number of negative things is because of faith and so the Mm -hmm. film for a for like the briefest of moments seems to be condemning the concept of faith yeah. And then it just moves on. And part of me is like, you've opened up a can of worms here because now you could be saying this about any religion. Yeah. That was one of the things I found troublesome about the film. On the one hand, you don't want to avoid that because that that's an explanation for why these people do these things. But at the same time, uh, 
definitely the film doesn't have enough time to go into the idea of faith and the concept right. of faith and what that can cause people to do. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think the, the important thing to talk about is just how, I don't know. There's a lot to talk. There's a lot to unpack in that. Some of it is just the sheer power of faith. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that goes across the board. That's the same for, the major religions that's the same for uh, Scientology or, or smaller religions it's the same thing for politics to a degree you know sure. like there's a lot of things that people just have faith in and they're able to believe anything uh, that that validates yeah so that often leads to the question of like d- does that mean faith is a bad thing if people can use their faith to justify something bad right does that mean faith is a bad thing? And of course you and I say no, because I think we can see the positive that it has, that it has done in our own lives and in the lives of people that we know. Um, but then of course, any number of, of, you know, atheists or agnostics would point to, you know, well, they'd point to the crusades because that's what they do. It's apparently the only thing. (laughs) Um, but then you and I would come back and say, yes, but if you look at the aforementioned Joseph Stalin and communism and like they've killed, between China and Russia, both communist, mm-hmm. like they've killed millions of people, way more right. than died in the Crusades, yeah. and they weren't killing them in the name of atheism, but it was an atheistic philosophy. So they weren't right. killing in the name of religion either. And so, but then people say like, and so to me, it's just like people are going to kill no matter what, and they mm-hmm. will they will use their faith if they need to. They'll use whatever they have to. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I think an important thing to stress is that faith is a natural extension of being a human. Mm-hmm. You have to have faith in something. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll go insane. Yeah. Or or even just to live your daily life. Like, uh, even if it's that, I think I may have said this on the show before, but like, even if your faith is in science and the observable empirical scientific truths of the world that we live in, uh, that's a faith that you have to rely on in order to get through yeah. your day, in order to believe anything, in order to do anything. So... I think well, and then when it comes to relationships and stuff, like for example, now I know my wife is in the other room. Your wife could very well. This is a weird. I'm sorry for putting it this way. Your wife could be having an affair right now. You don't know. Mm-hmm. She's not physically in the room with you. I better. Call she could her. be. Do- you better, better call, call her. her. <laughs> this is what I mean by like you could go insane. Eventually, yeah. you have to have faith in something. Which another word for that is trust. You have to yeah. trust based on previous knowledge, even though it's not in front of you right now. You have trust yeah. in that. So faith tends to have this uh, connection to religion mm-hmm. or to spiritual beliefs. And I think it is the right word for those things. But uh, I think it's important for us to recognize that uh, that same concept is always applied to our lives about something. Uh, it's it's really probably the best way to ex- uh, a good way to explain it is like, say, a light switch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either on or it's off, but either way, it's still a light switch. Yes. And that's the same thing with faith. Like you either have, cause if you don't believe in Christianity, then you have faith that Christianity isn't real. If you yeah. do believe in it, you have faith that it is real. So it, it's really kind of a, not to turn it into a computer, but yeah. it's kind of that sense of zeros and ones. Like your whole life is based on you believing or not believing things. And either way you have faith in things being true or untrue. Right. So we can't really throw faith out as a bad concept because faith is, is a natural extension of being a human. You have to have faith in things. Um, so then the question becomes, 
what is uh, is religious faith a bad thing? Right. And you know, it's there is a uh, in the film. There's a, a journalist uh, whose name I've forgotten I, and I didn't write down, but he makes an argument that I think is a good one, um, where he says talks about you know people say like what's the difference between a cult and a religion and he says if you talk to a christian a jew a muslim or you know any any number of others and you ask them what do you believe they can tell you the core of it in about two minutes maybe even one sentence Mm -hmm. one bible verse for example like john 316 shows up at any sporting event (laughs) And, be, and the reason people zero in on it is because that is the verse. Now, obviously, there's like a lot more to it, but like at its core, that's the verse of Christianity. Yeah. A single verse. And people are so open with it that they'll just have it on a sign at a baseball game. Mm-hmm. And he says, like, these religions, they can sum it up and they can get to the absolute core Whereas Scientology and probably any number of, of cults, he said, you won't find out the core until you're several years and several hundred thousand dollars in. Yeah. And by that time, you know, there might be this, uh, almost a personal, personal sense of pride or maybe even self identity of like, well, this has been my life for so long. Mm-hmm. I guess I can just keep going along with it. Yeah. Um, even if I don't necessarily, you know, I mean, to go back to Paul Haggis, I mean, he talks very openly about his own response to hearing this stuff. Yeah. And I can't repeat it here because there's a lot of swearing involved. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. The self-help stuff I was on board with, but what, what is this? Yeah. You know, and, and the feeling of, and the, the reporter refers to it as a bait and switch. Yeah. And I genuinely, and of course, you know, I'm hardly unbiased, but I don't think there's a bait and switch to Christianity. Like, you know what you're going to get now as you get deeper into it, like it may manifest itself like in different ways as far as the things you struggle with or whatever. Right. But you know what you're getting from the outset. Yeah. And, uh, an important thing about it too, is I think, uh, Well, I guess we're kind of getting into some of the differences between something like Scientology or I guess specifically Scientology and Christianity. Sure. Um, Because we would we would contend that there's a major difference or there are many major differences, perhaps. And uh, one or two. They're basic. (laughs) Look, they're all basically the same. It doesn't matter what you have faith in, just as long as you have faith. Our dogma episode is available for two dollars and fifty cents at more than one lesson dot com. but so if we want to get into that a little bit and like what the Christian faith means uh, versus the the faith in involved in Scientology, um, that is one difference that you were talking about where there is a, a, a secrecy to it. Yeah. And some of it's intentional. It's hard to tell or say succinctly how much is actually intentional secrecy. Um, but if you want to know pretty much anything there is to know about Christianity, it's in a Bible. You mm-hmm. can buy it. In any bookstore, it's in uh, it's in hotel rooms when you go into them. Like the the, the information uh, that makes up the Christian religion is readily available in the Bible. Whereas that is an, an obvious market difference between uh, with Scientology because um, for those who haven't seen the film, uh, what one of the things Tyler was talking about and talking about Paul Haggis's response is that uh, 
there's certain information about uh, kind of the, the creation myth, maybe, yeah. and the, uh, the uh, uh, I guess, let's use mythology for want of a better word, um, about it is not revealed to you until you get to a certain point uh, in the religion. And you get that by uh, doing these auditing sessions. Mm. Um, that's something that anyone can walk in and start to do. But you have levels that you get to the more that you do the auditing and the quote-unquote better that you get at it. Um, but you have to get to a certain point before they would tell you this information about the creation and uh, the mythology and all that stuff. Right. So that's a major difference between Scientology and really any of the major religions. Yeah. Um, and I think – I personally think that's something that we should question um, because if it isn't something that can be told to anyone I've, – I've heard a lot of pastors say that you you can explain – the basics of Christianity to a, to a child and they'll make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, there are maybe some more complicated things about it, but it's all readily available. It's all there for you to learn and understand. And, um, if that's not the case, then why, why would that be? Why would you not be able to tell these details about Scientology from the beginning? I think that's an important thing to question. And you know, one thing that I wanted to, to bring up is that for me, okay. Um, Boy, oh boy. How do I structure this? Okay, you know what? Uh, I'll get into the companion film, which is uh, the 1973 horror film The Wicker Man, directed by Robin Hardy, written by Anthony Schaefer, who actually went on to write a number of really interesting things. Uh, wish I'd written them down. Um, starring Edward Woodward. <laughs> it seems like he should have gone with Ed or Eddie, because that's too many words. Um and of course, Christopher Lee, who is uh, amazing and apparently is going to be alive for as long as he wants to be. Uh, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> well, he's a vampire. I saw that, oh, that, films. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a vampire and a dark wizard. So he's got you covered one way or another. And a, um, and a Sith. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the head of a cult. He's wow. Yeah. He doesn't play heroes very often, does he? <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, so, uh, I actually only saw the wicker man for the first time last year. Um, and I had heard I saw a lot it for about the first it time last night. Yeah, there you go. Um, I had heard a lot about it. Uh, I really enjoy it. I don't find it scary. I don't think it's a it's frightening really film. Scary, no, there's a dread there. There's certainly a, a nice command of tone and it's about a guy, a very, uh, a, a police officer uh, or detective who's a very outspoken and a very devout Christian. Mm-hmm. And he gets caught and, uh, this woman goes missing. And so he goes to this, uh, small, uh, island uh, that is that operates very strangely mm. um, and seems to be very, uh, for lack of a better term, sex positive. Um, <laughs> yeah. One could say hedonism positive uh, <laughs> as far as how they approach things. And so he gets drawn into this plot involving, oh, everybody on this religion, everybody on this island seems to be the same religion. And it's one I haven't really heard of before. And it seems to have some interesting ideas. It seems very paganistic, very kind of, uh, uh, maybe elements worshiping. Yeah. And so as he gets drawn further in, uh, to me, there's a growing sense of dread of like, this is not going to go well for anybody. But as things go on, he has a number of sort of debates, for lack of a better term, um, with Christopher Lee, who's the head of this of this uh, 
religion or cult. Um, and Christopher Lee points out like, how can you bring up what's silly about my religion? Look at the things you believe. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, as I mentioned, I actually talked about it with Reed Lackey, um, a couple months ago, uh, on the show. And it was a film that, uh, it didn't necessarily shake my faith, but it certainly, you know, it, I think it's important when you're, when you believe, uh, really anything to look at it critically and try to acknowledge, yeah, this would sound strange. Like there's a reason that you need to have, you know, faith in it. It's not right there in front of you. Um, and so, uh, and recognize that, well, mine doesn't sound, mine sounds probably as strange as anybody else's. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to make fun of somebody else's views for being strange. Instead, we can have a respectful discussion about why I think their views are wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that's a much, no, don't get me wrong. People would say that that's not a good attitude either, but I think you can still be respectful about like, well, I think I'm right and you're wrong. Let's have this discussion. And both of you can actually walk away uh, feeling like the other person has respected you. Whereas yeah. if it's just like, your religion is silly. Look at all this stuff that you believe. No one wins in that situation. Yeah. But um, but anyway, uh, one of the things, and so The Wicker Man, I, I think it's a really good movie. I really liked it. Um, people consider it one of the best horror movies of all time. Uh I, I really responded to it. I don't think I'm, it is a horror movie in that there's horrific ideas in it. There's horrific images in it. It's not, I don't think it's scary. There's a dread there that I think, you know, can, should be acknowledged. And there's a nice twist. Um, and there's a fatalism to it, certainly. But, uh, but yeah, as a horror movie, it's, it's hard to say. It's like Frankenstein being a great horror movie. It's like, yeah, yeah I guess so. It's not scary, but that's no, there's nothing terrifying in it but you saw uh, you saw it recently and uh, yeah. you and you you didn't like it i liked it okay there was more singing in it than i would have expected yeah <laughs> there's quite a lot of singing in it and there's por- there's a part uh when i think my wife turned to me and she was like is this a musical and i was like i i don't think so but there has been a lot of singing um not that i don't like singing in movies but it just it seemed strange in a movie yeah. that I was expecting to be a horror movie, which still is, you know, to a degree. Um, I think what I like about it is just the sense that everybody is kind of on board with everything that's going on as strange mm-hmm. as it is. So, uh, I think, I think it's interesting anytime in a film where you take a character who basically is, is our audience surrogate who believes the things that we do, but is surrounded by people who disagree with him. Yeah. It's the same, it's the same, uh, core idea as a lot of Hitchcock films where you know someone's right but no one else believes them yeah. or you know that or something happened. Yeah. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, 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 something like that. Um, so somebody who's just placed in this uh, society where they are the odd man out by being the quote-unquote normal one, by believing mm-hmm. what we the audience believe, uh, I think that's that's interesting. And to the point that people almost don't understand why he doesn't uh, think the way that they do. Yeah. At first, you think it's going to be that they're all kind of devious, and in a way they are, but it's not like they're not really trying to hide who they are. Right. He he finds out things that they've lied to him about early on in the film, and then they just kind of be like, "Yeah, that's right. We we lied about that, but doesn't matter." They're, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's disconcerting, not merely that he is not like them, but that they are so. 
that him being a cop means nothing to them. Right. Yeah. Like it is because, you know, we're told that like, well, don't lie to a cop. And if you do stick with it, yeah, you know, um, because in the end you're not supposed to lie to cops yeah. and they do and they, and they don't mind. Yeah. Like they, they live so much by their own rules mm-hmm. that his spiritual beliefs mean nothing to them, but also just the, the norms of everyday culture mean nothing to them. Yeah. You know, he has no authority there. Yeah. And so it's just the idea of people being so separated from what we think of as normal culture, normal Western culture, at least, um, is, it's just interesting. Yeah. Um, I did, oh, what else was I going to say? Oh, I thought it was also interesting that, uh, this is nothing about the film itself, but it, it clearly was influential because I was remembering a lot of other, other films that I think have clear influence from it. Uh, one being Hot Fuzz, mm-hmm. which is a film that I love, but obviously is very influenced by yes. this town of people who are, uh, have different ideas about the greater good, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, and uh, and in a much more dark way, the movie Kill List, I think, has a Kill lot List, of it in yeah, there. Absolutely. Um, down to the costume that he's wearing at the end with kind of the hunchback. Yep. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I, I found that interesting that the, the uh, I guess, the aesthetic and sort of the general plot of it have been very influential in a lot of a lot of other films, films that I enjoy. Um, so as I as I think about as I put these two movies together. Um, thematically, one of the things, you know, one of the, one of the questions is what is the difference between Scientology and Christianity or in the case of the Wicker Man, whatever the name of the island religion is and Christianity. Mm. Um, especially when you have, you know, Christopher Lee, uh, pointing out like, well, what about this silly thing that you, that you believe and that sort of thing? Um, to me, one thing that it comes down to is, and maybe there's, and I think there's probably an underlying idea on my part, uh, uh, an underlying assumption that selflessness is good mm-hmm. and self-sacrifice is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm taking that as a given, but I think most people would. Mm-hmm. I think any religion that emphasizes do what you want do whatever you want mm-hmm. and it'll be fine. Don't sacrifice anything. It's all about you. And early on in, in going clear, they show uh, like some documents. And one of the things that it says, this is all about you and mm-hmm. your enlightenment and stuff like that. Yeah. And actually when I think of the creation myth of, of uh, Scientology and that, Sorry, myth is the word that is that is used in the film. Um, I also think it is a myth. I should go ahead and say that. Hmm. What's interesting to me is that it's not actually a creation myth. It doesn't talk no. about where Lord Zenu comes from. No. Or the aliens or anything like that. That being said, we're only hearing a little bit of that within the film. So possibly that it, it does go back further. That, although maybe you know more about that than I do. I'll say this. The, the part that is emphasized is the part that has to do with us. Yes. Yeah. Which is to say, the reason you're miserable, the reason you're sad is because of this. And it emphasizes Lord Zeno and body thetans and all of these things. But in the end, it's saying, look, does it really, like, it doesn't matter where these things come from. 
what matters is, oh, and by the way, uh, yeah, I don't know if they go into more detail. How could I? <laughs> I haven't given them a bunch of money. I haven't True. been in there for a number of years. Yeah. Nobody really knows. This is yeah. stuff that has just sort of come out mm-hmm. uh, from ex-members and stuff like that. And so, uh, but the emphasis is not on where it all started. The emphasis is on what do you need to know so that you're happy. Yeah. And I feel like that is where it come, where it gets really, that's where you can point. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's a, a, I don't want to spoil the Wicker Man if people haven't seen it. Um, but what I will say is, uh, Christopher Lee's character is, um, is the head of this religion and people basically just do what he says and that sort of thing. And it very much is a function of him mm-hmm. and things are not going well. Like the crops aren't growing. Yeah. And so he is enacting a lot of things so that the crops will grow because right now they're thinking like the, the, the followers are like, well, why, why are the crops failing? I thought we're doing all the things that you, the leaders said we should do. Mm-hmm. And so, so, and at the end, um, the, the cop says, if the crops fail next year, your people will kill you on May day. And there's a look of fear on Christopher Lee's face in which he says they will not fail. So he responds with confidence, but the confidence is all like in that case, it's like he needs to show confidence to them, but there's a flash of fear on his face, which is like, I might lose power. Yeah. I might, I might die. They might kill me. Mm-hmm. But, um, in that same way, like L Ron Hubbard stood to gain a whole lot. Yeah. From Scientology, David Miscavige, Gains a whole lot. Jesus died. Paul got put in prison. Christians were regularly crucified or fed to lions or whatever. And I recognize we're in power now. Like, not to put, you know, I recognize that the Christian church is a large entity now that exu- that has a lot of influence. Yeah. I recognize that. Um, but even if we are, the emphasis is always put the other person first, mm-hmm. turn the other cheek, think of others, even people that don't believe, think of them as higher than yourself. Yeah. Take up your cross every day. Love your enemies. Mm-hmm. I mean, a big thing is made in going clear about the way Scientology approaches its enemies. Yeah. And it's to silence them. Yeah. Yeah. And even specifically, you mentioned the turn another cheek thing, which is a verse that I think most people know. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the people who had been involved in high levels of the, of the Church yeah. of Scientology, Mike Grinner, in the film, he describes their, um, their philosophy about that idea being don't ever turn the other cheek, hit him back. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and the thing is, I want to go with this idea that the deeper into Scientology you get, the more like L. Ron Hubbard you become. Hmm. Now, the theory of Christianity is the deeper into it you get, the more like Christ you'll become. You'll never get there, of course. Um, And so let's look at what that means. And, of course, there's a lot of of debate about 
uh, who L. Ron Hubbard was. Mm-hmm. And certainly his ex-wife has one view. Yeah. Um, but at the very least, you can look at military records and you can see that, oh, this is what he claims mm-hmm. he did in the military. And then here's what the actual records claim. Hmm. And it looks like he was just, he was constantly trying to build himself up in the eyes of others, mm-hmm. making himself look better than he was, which incidentally is an instinct that I completely understand. And so he probably felt a certain degree of insecurity and, and inadequacy in his own life. Um, but at the very least, in that instance, the more you're like L. Ron Hubbard, in this instance, which is provable, then you'll be a liar. Hmm. You will lie so that people think better of you. Whereas the more you become like Christ, the more bold you will be in telling the truth and being very honest about the mistakes you've made. Hmm. Um, there was a sermon that you and I listened to in our men's group that we actually didn't like that much, but it said that, you know, when you find your identity in Christ and nothing else, then you will, then you, you, you don't feel any qualms about saying where you've made mistakes because mm-hmm. those mistakes are not, they, those don't define you. Right. If you define yourself by your job and then you get fired, then what is that? Then who are you? Right. Or if you mess something up, not even get fired. If you mess something up and you, suddenly you're not great at your job, then it's like, Oh, I guess I'm a bad person. No, if you find your identity in Christ, who is perfect, certainly you're not going to think that you're perfect, but if you find your identity in Christ, um, then all these other things can fall away and you still have this thing. And so you can be honest about the mistakes that you've made and yeah. the things you struggle with. Whereas Scientology, it's all about controlling perception. Yeah. It's all about selling. And, and it's about what you do too, which I think is another big, uh, mm-hmm. big difference. Um, and there's something I think we've talked about before. There's a difference between Christianity and a lot of, a lot of other religions is that it's purely faith based. Right. Um, uh, it might not seem at the beginning like something like Scientology, for example, is very works based, but yeah. uh, from what we can understand, it seems to be that it is about that. It is about doing enough uh, of the auditing sessions. Right. Um, it's about that. There's a lot of things that you have to do. It's about some of it's about giving money to support the to support the church. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, while there are works within the Christian faith and within the Christian uh, church that are encouraged and and that are seen as positive, none of them are required in order to be a Christian yeah. and to believe. Uh, it, none of them are required for your salvation. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the things that, at least in this documentary, we're seeing characterized for the way that Scientology works are there things that you have to do. There was the woman, Hannah, we were talking about earlier who said uh, – what happened to me that I'm that I have all these beatings? What do I need to do yeah. um, to get out of them? And there's a lot of things that she has to do. There's a lot of works based in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this other woman says, when you're in the organization, all the good that happens to you is because of Scientology, and everything that isn't good is your fault. Yeah. And it's just like, boy, that's rough. And don't get me wrong, I, there are people that talk about like. Uh, that when good things happen in your life, you should praise God when in bad things, you should pray to God. Hmm. And, and so it's like, well, why can't, if you're praising God for the good things, why can't you get upset with God for the bad things? Yeah. So that's a thing that I, that I definitely understand. Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to look at it 
if you want to look at it in a larger sense, it's like, okay, well, maybe God let something bad happen to you so that something large, so that a larger good can happen. But in that instance, it's still, it's still an example of he is still in control. He mm-hmm. made a choice as opposed to like, and it doesn't necessarily have to be your fault. Yeah. You know, if a tornado takes out your, your house, it's not because you weren't trying, you weren't praying hard enough. Right. Or anything like that. It's and what, uh, okay. Matthew three, four, uh, sorry, Matthew five, uh, 45 is he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Like there's, there is a great deal of, fairness Mm -hmm. and just because you follow him that is not a guarantee that things are going to go well for you right but at the same time just i realize we've really made christianity look good here (laughs) which is like you're gonna have to work and it's not a guarantee that things are going to go well for you (laughs) well no but what we're saying is like the those things are realities of life they are not consequences of christianity right the difference is the consequences or sorry the actual consequences of christianity are that if you believe this thing just believing it then all of the other stuff is uh, kind of inconsequential yeah. uh, or is at least a side thing is not the central thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, even, even though things may be your fault in your life, there may be things that you did wrong. Uh, there may be consequences you're dealing with in your life that are because of something bad you did. They might not be, mm. but uh, the thing is you can, you can live with confidence in a world where you are responsible for a lot of your problems, knowing that they will not cost you your life. Yeah. They will not cost you your salvation. Um, so we can rejoice as Christians. We can rejoice even in moments of, uh, even in moments of trouble, whether it be, uh, something we're a victim of or something that we brought on ourselves. Uh, either way, God is still God. Our salvation is still solid. And you know, you said, uh, you said the word rejoice, and that reminded me of a quote that John Travolta, uh, says in the film. He says, probably my favorite concept about Scientology is a world without criminality, uh, a world without war, and a world without insanity. And I know of no other group whose goals are that clear. You name me another philosophy, religion, or technology that one of its main, one of its main goals, besides the three I mentioned earlier, where joy is the operative concept. Now, one thing that I actually don't necessarily like about the film is the emphasis that it puts on John Travolta and Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Um, almost as a way of saying like, Hey, you know, these guys that you already think are kind of silly. Let's really emphasize them. It's like when it comes right down to it, they're just, they're not in the leadership. They, yeah, they are adherents of a belief system. Yeah. That's- so I feel like it's, it's a little, there's a bit of a tabloid quality to it. And while it does say like, if they do know about some of these things and maybe they do, they have a responsibility to speak out and they're not. Okay. That's one thing, but they yeah. really puts a lot of emphasis on. So I don't necessarily want to like bash John Travolta here. Uh, not nearly as much as I'd be willing to bash uh, David Miscavige. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, Oh, so a, a world uh, without criminality, war or insanity, just basically a, a world of unity and love, uh, with an emphasis on joy. And he says, like, you name me one other thing with those goals where the operative concept is joy. It's like uh, Christianity. Yeah. In fact, probably almost any religion yeah. would put it in those terms. Yeah. Now that might not actually be true in all of the, in all cases, but in Christianity, like the joy and the freedom of, y- yeah, your sins are forgiven and you, 
and by the way, you're going to continue to sin. Those are also forgiven. Yeah. You, you can't lose, you can't lose this. If you're, you know, like if you're sincerely following it, you're going to make mistakes probably every single day. Mm-hmm. We'd like, you know, obviously there, there, there's like a, a code of ethics and, and, and a way you should live and you're not going to, and that's okay. Love you. Uh, I love you anyway. And uh, you're still forgiven. Yeah. Like that, there's joy in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, and now that I say it, like, I, I realize that I, I feel like I should find more joy in it. Mm-hmm rather than focus on like the 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 frustration of when i do mess up uh in one way or another you know we don't have to be defined by that whereas if you're a scientology you are defined by how much money you give how many audit sessions you've done yeah and all of these things that is what you are defined by because there is no forgiveness there's certainly no forgiveness yeah in that religion mm-hmm. you know um and it's just and so I, I, you know, I feel bad like tearing into Scientology, but I guess ultimately what I'm saying, and ultimately what I'm saying is the difference between a cult and Christianity, and and we are specifying Scientology as a cult, um, because it's saying that it's it silences its critics, it does not welcome any kind of criticism, um, it detaches from people. It is constantly trying to silence people, whereas over and over again in the Bible, it says, go and tell, go and tell everybody mm-hmm. over and over again. It says that and it says, you know, love your enemies. Don't silence them. Love yeah. them. Yeah. I think that's one thing I really wanted to touch on is uh, the um, the the attitude towards doubt. Yeah. Um, now, there are a lot of people humans within christianity over the years who uh have made a lot of mistakes about their approach to that people Mm -hmm. who have silenced unbelievers sometimes by things like the spanish inquisition for for example like nobody expects it (laughs) um that's a monty python reference i I didn't get it at all okay yeah um but so so we should say there have been human examples throughout history of Christianity doing similar things, suppressing doubt. Oh, sure. Um, but if you go to the core, if you look in the Bible itself, um, there are lots of examples of the people that we are meant to uh, to uh, uh, revere expressing yeah. doubt. A lot of Christians will talk about it. If you talk to them throughout the Psalms, there are, problem, there are uh, passages of David saying, why are you letting this happen to me? Like. Yeah look look at the terrible situation that i'm in yeah um and, and i think really the coup de gras is jesus on the cross says why have you forsaken me yeah um i i think that cuts to the heart of the matter is like the the central figure of christianity the god of christianity yeah. is expressing his displeasure or uh hurt from the father his own doubt mm-hmm. um and so i think contrast that with uh paul haggis one of the things he says in the film is that he he was in scientology for a really long time and he said from the time i got in for 30 years i'd never read one critical thing about scientology yeah and that's one of the things the film goes into is is controlling the image so much that you're not even hearing any criticism about it yeah and uh 
like I said, while granted there have been pe- people throughout Christianity who have wanted to do the same thing, that's not the message of the Bible. That's not the true message of Christianity. Right. It's it's that idea that like if we are indeed trying to, if we are sincerely trying to emulate Christ, and indeed let, let's let's speak hypothetically, if you were to able to perfectly emulate Christ, you still have doubt. Yeah. In certain moments. Yeah. Like that's amazing to me. You know, um, and it's just, and what's interesting to me and, you know, and, and I don't know everything about the church of Scientology. I know very little. Um, but to my knowledge, I don't know of like a lot of like apologetics for the, for the church of Scientology. Yeah. It seems to be very, uh, you positive for a long time. Yeah. And then once you are in, you kind of have to stay in and you're not allowed to question it. Yeah. Um, and again, like we said from the beginning, this is what we know from the documentary mostly sure, and, and maybe, maybe a few other sources. So we don't know everything. Undoubtedly there are like, this is probably a, the tip of the iceberg as far as probably the positives and the negatives. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess what I was getting at is that's, uh, Excuse me. It's uh, that that idea of not really being able to think otherwise. And uh, you mentioned apologetics. It's not drawing people in with the the text and the beliefs of Scientology, whereas uh, as much as bringing them in with the positive experiences that you can get out of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh I feel I, I do feel like when you read when you read the Bible and you look at you know the people you're talking about like Jeremiah, Job, David, and then if you look at the New Testament, you look at like Paul, and you look at the various people that are killed, and then Jesus and Jesus himself. Like there are no guarantees that everything will go great for you. There's no guarantee that people will love you, that you'll mm-hmm. get everything you want. There is only a guarantee of love and forgiveness. Now I say that as though that's a small thing, Yeah. but for some people in this world, that is a small thing. It's mm-hmm. like, yes, yes. Love and forgiveness is all well and good. What about my career? Yeah. You know? And after a while, I feel like a, maybe we could look at it like this. If you want to look at an analogy, a religion is a doctor who says, this is what we can do. It, it might not fix all of your problems. Mm-hmm. A cult is a snake oil salesman who comes into town and says, if you, if you give me money, incidentally, and of course doctors get paid as well, but like, mm. if you give me money, this one thing will solve every possible problem you ever have. There's not a, now, they if call them cure-alls me, for a reason. Yeah. If you'll excuse me, I got to get back on my wagon and leave. Um, <laughs> And so it's, uh, yeah, like Christianity is not a cure-all. It's not a guarantee that you'll be happy, but there is a difference between happiness and joy, to go back to the John Travolta quote. Joy is the internalizing of the fact that you are loved, and thus you are lovable. No matter what you've done, you are lovable, you are loved, you are forgiven, and you will continue to be forgiven. You know, that should provide tremendous comfort. And I don't know. It's, uh, and any religion that says that, no, 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 
you're the most important thing, more important in fact than God. Um, I feel like that is one to be uh, very wary of because mm-hmm. they are pandering. Mm-hmm. Be- beware, beware of any pandering in life. Yeah. Uh, because uh, chances are they want something from you. Mm-hmm. So I think we will leave there. Um, once again, uh, you know, everything that we've said is based on the documentary. Now, of course, I've read articles and stuff in the past, but I'm trying to focus this primarily on the things talked about in the documentary as a film. It's fine. There are moments of power, but it is definitely, uh, it definitely has an agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but as long as you know that, as long as you know that, all right, this is the goal is to make is to not even make Scientology look bad, but to recognize like, okay, this is what I, this is what Alex Gibney thinks about Scientology. And he's going to make a film that reflects that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the stuff that we are saying is based on the film. Right. Um, but I, I think what we want people to get out of this is that there are major differences between, uh, something like Scientology or Scientology specifically and what we believe because exactly. I think there can be a tendency and may even be a, a side goal of the film is to say that th- they're all the same and they're all bad. Right. Which is, which is a concern of my, which was a concern of mine, which right. is like, and it's one of the things that bothers me about, uh, parasitic cults is that if somebody believes in them and then gets away from them, then they will have this be this attitude of like, I am not going to get burned again. I'm not going to believe anything. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like that's no good either. Yeah. And I think there has been a little bit of that response. Uh, the one thing that made me think this might be a good thing to talk about is, uh, I think the day after it came out or maybe a few days after there was a film critic. Should I say the name? Sure. Uh, there's a film critic named Devin Faraci, uh, who tweeted, Church of Scientology should be taxed because that was a major thing that they talk about in the film, how because they're classified as a religion and as far as the IRS is concerned, they don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. But after that, he said all religions should be taxed. So part of his response from this movie was to say they're really all bad. They're really all getting away with something by not being taxed. Yeah. And the tax thing is a whole other thing, whether or not churches should have to pay taxes. We, we won't go into all that here. Yeah. But I'm not even a hundred percent sure what I think of it, <laughs> but, um, the idea that all these should be kind of lumped together, that they're all systems that force people into believing something, uh, coerce people into doing things that they don't want to do and take money away from them is not the case with religion in general. Yes. Um, and, uh, I think we want to both make the case that I, I think across the board, that's not the case with religion, but also specifically what are the things that make Christianity stand out and why it shouldn't be thrown in together with Scientology. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to look in this, this I referenced it earlier in our dogma episode. Um, they, uh, there's a, a line in the film um, where Salma Hayek says, it doesn't matter what you have faith in just that you have faith. We don't believe that. We no. think it, ma- it It definitely matters, it matters what greatly. you have faith in. Again, uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier, that everybody has faith in exactly, something. Exactly. Uh, I quote this all the time. It's a Bob Dylan song. 
uh, and the line is, uh, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, uh, not everybody recognizes when they are serving the devil, but it's this idea. It's like, yeah, you, you, you have faith in something. And so the question then becomes, uh, do you have faith in the right thing? Um, you know, and I know that there are some people who I remember I had a convert back when more than one lesson had a message board, I had a conversation with a guy who talked about, uh, not wanting to be a sheep. And I said, seems to me that everybody's a sheep. The question is, which shepherd are we following? Um, you know, and I think that's the much more important question. Mm-hmm. Better to recognize that you are a sheep in some way. Yeah. Um, and then like take that as a given and then move on to the, I think a much more important question. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I think we will leave it there. Uh, once again, uh, on the Facebook page and and on the website, I will post a a link for, uh, the, the meetup at WonderCon. So if you're in the Anaheim area, uh, this weekend, uh, stop by the Hilton and say hello to me. I'll be wearing my battleship pretension shirt. Um, note to self, remember to do that now that I've said it. Um, (laughs) And I think that is, uh, I think that is about it. Uh, I'm sure that people have, uh, comments on this episode. So feel free to leave that in the comment section of the post on more than one lesson.com, or you can email me Tyler at battle. Uh, sorry, Tyler, more, you, that'll get to me too, by the way, <laughs> that's true. Uh, Tyler at more than one lesson.com or you, or Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. You can also uh, like us on Facebook and sign up for our newsletter. In the meantime, thank you, Josh, for being here. You're welcome. Thank you guys for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye.